And now hear from God's holy word, 2 Samuel chapter 2, continuing our study in the book of Samuel. Hear God's word. It happened after this that David inquired of Yahweh, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And Yahweh said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, your word is holy, and we come to it, submitting ourselves to it, asking you to, by your word, change us, transform us through the story of your people, through the redemption that's woven through every verse, through the way that you point us to Jesus and how he builds his kingdom. We look at David and the beginning of his kingdom, and we ask you now to strengthen us with your word. Father, by your Holy Spirit, transform us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever spent a good bit of money on a new gadget, a new toy, a new thing, maybe a new appliance, only to get it home, unwrap it, try to plug it in and figure out, I need about six other things to make this work. I need to take like two more trips to Lowe's or Home Depot to get this to do the thing it's supposed to do. Have you ever gotten a new toy for Christmas or for your birthday and the minute you open the box and you start to enjoy it, it just, it just falls apart. Something breaks and it's, it's ruined. It's, it's not going to work. If you've ever bought a car and driven it for about a week and then you go out to the driveway and you see green fluid all over the driveway and it's leaking water and it's leaking antifreeze. If you've had any of those experiences, you can sympathize where David is. You can sympathize with where David is at this point in his life. Right now, he has the kingdom. Saul is dead. The house of Saul is gone for the most part, save one of Saul's sons. And we'll read about him this morning. David, it's, it's time for him to now take the throne. It's time for him to be king over all Israel. But the kingdom is broken. When he gets it, it's broken. It's not working the way he uh, uh, wants it to. And we'll also see how David contributes to its brokenness. He bakes some problems into his kingdom from the very start, and he contributes in a great way to the troubles and the heartaches that he's going to face many years from now. He has been waiting patiently. David has been waiting for his turn to serve Israel as king since he was a very young man. He was called and anointed and set apart for this task as a boy. His whole life to this point has been one of delayed satisfaction, delayed gratification, patient, humble obedience and submission. And now that the path to the throne is clear, now that he has an uncontested claim to the throne, life doesn't get any easier. Right out of the gate, it, he opens his toy and it's broken. He gets his new thing and it, and it doesn't work. Uh, he, from day one, life as Israel's king is going to be just as tumultuous and just as difficult and as full of conflict as life was before he was king. Saul's house doesn't go away quietly. And now David is going to continue to have to be patient, still yet patient, and wait for God to make everything right. There's no relaxation now that, that Saul is gone. And there's a very important lesson embedded in this. 
Getting the thing that you want so badly, whatever it is out there that you're pining for right now that you may think will change everything and transform everything in your life. And if we just, if we just have this thing, man, everything would be better. You know what? The, getting the thing that you want so badly doesn't always fix everything. And in fact, it brings with it new heartaches and new problems. And that's what David finds out. But at the same time, we see even in spite of uh, some big mistakes, big, big problems that David um, is accountable for in these chapters. He is also a faithful man. He's also, he's also separating himself and differentiating himself from Saul. And he does this very early on. He goes in a decisively different direction from Saul from the outset. In his first official act, as we read just a minute ago, uh, after the death of Saul, after he mourns for Saul and Jonathan, his first official act, he inquires of Yahweh asking, what should I do? Should I go up to the cities of Hebron or the cities of, of Judah, Lord? Should I do this? Remember, at this point, David is still living among the Philistines. He's still in the city of Ziklag because he's been exiled by Saul's tyranny. Uh, so David is living outside of the land at this point. And it seems like it ought to be the right time now to go back home. But before he makes a move, he asks the Lord, what should I do? Is this this the right time? You see, Saul didn't do this. And this was one one of Saul's big problems. He turned away from inquiring of the Lord and the Lord eventually stopped communicating with Saul. But what's ironic about that is Saul's name means ask. The word Saul means pray. And Saul stopped sawing. Saul stopped asking. And while Saul stopped asking, the first thing that David does is Saul. The very first act is that he Saul's. He's the true Saul then. He is the true man that God has anointed to lead Israel. And so he asks, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And Yahweh says, yes, go up. And after he gets the answer from the Lord, uh, he says, well, where should I go? And the Lord says, you should go to Hebron. Now, the scene that we have here is a scene of ascension or resurrection. Hebron was on high ground. So the Lord literally tells him, go up to Hebron. So he is, you know, geographically going up to the city. But in another sense, David has been living outside the land. David has been among the dead, among those covenantally separated from God. And so uh, David's move from Philistia to Hebron is also going up from death to resurrection. It's an ascension for David to go up to Hebron. He's been in exile, but now he's returning to the land of the living from the land of the dead. Now, why did the Lord say go to Hebron? Well, Hebron is not a city that the Lord just pulled out of a hat and said, ah, Hebron, or he didn't throw a dart at a map. Hebron is a city that is associated with both Abraham and the conquest of the land. Remember, the only piece of land that Abraham ever owned was near Hebron. Hebron was the down payment by God to Abraham for Abraham's inheritance of the land that they're not going to experience or enjoy until many centuries later. But Hebron, Hebron was, the, was the down payment. Hebron was also one of the cities visited by the spies that Moses sent into the land, and that's where they saw giants. And so 40 years later, when they get back to the land and they ask Caleb, what, where, where do you want to go, he, uh, uh, Caleb? What land do you want? You get, you get to pick because you've been so faithful. And Caleb says, yeah, what was that city we went to that had all the giants in it? Yeah, that one, the one on the mountain, Hebron. Yes, Caleb went and kicked out the giants. 
And on top of all this, Hebron was also a city that was designated as a city of refuge. This is a significant city historically in the life of God's people. So David goes up to Hebron as a new Abraham. He's not going to take the land and the kingdom all at once, just as God's people received the land bit by bit, just as Hebron was just this down payment on the whole thing for Abraham. So now David gets this little piece, this little toehold, this little beachhead called Hebron for his conquest of the whole land. David is also a new Caleb. You know, Caleb was a giant killer. Well, David is a giant killer. And now David goes in as this new Caleb who's fought his own giants and who's now going to continue to prove himself a man of valor. So Hebron is a beachhead for this new invasion of the land, this new inheritance of the whole land. When he goes up to Hebron, the men of Judah anoint David as king and they recognize him, obviously, as king. Later, he's going to be anointed as king over all of Israel, but right now it's only the tribe of Judah to the south that accepts him and recognizes him. So this is all good and this is something to rejoice over, but as we'll learn to take as in, in our study of the adult David over these many weeks that will be in 2 Samuel, we get something good to rejoice over and immediately our heart sinks and say, no, why? Why? Because as he goes, we're reminded that he has two wives. He has Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal. Well, he's got two wives listed here, but how many wives does he have? He really has three. We'll, we'll run back into Michal later. Michal was the daughter of Saul, who Saul took back. Saul took her back. But this, this is going to be a problem. Right at the outset, his polygamy is underscored. Well, let's keep reading. We're going we're gonna to try to cover, oh my goodness, we're out of time. No, we got, uh, well, I want to try as, as, as best I can to get through uh, these, these two chapters here because it really is one, one big long narrative. Uh, so I will read quickly, verse four, in the middle of verse four. And they told David saying, the men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, you are blessed of Yahweh for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may Yahweh show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened, be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So you would expect that David might be jealous of men who had shown favor to Saul. Why do the men of Jabesh Gilead show favor to Saul? And when Saul's body is hung as a trophy in the temple of the Philistines, the men of Jabesh Gilead go and get it and bury him. What's, what's going on with Jabesh Gilead? Remember, very early on when Saul is still a heroic, honorable, noble man, Saul delivered the city of Jabesh Gilead from Nahash the Ammonite. As we talked about this Wednesday night in our prayer meeting, uh, Nahash the Ammonite was the guy who threatened to cut off everybody's thumbs and big toes. And so now here, uh, several years later, 40-something years later, they still have their thumbs and toes, as, as Nathaniel pointed out on Wednesday night. And so now they're happy, and so now they go get uh, the body of of Saul in honor of his deliverance and they dispose of the body. Now, if you're thinking like a secular uh, person, if you're thinking like a heathen, you would think, oh my goodness, this town, it, these are full, this town is full of Saul sympathizers. I've got to go wipe them out. 
David doesn't go wipe them out. He goes and he grieves with them. He embraces them and says, thank you for loving my father, Saul. Thank you for loving the anointed of God. And this is a big reversal. This is a big turn. This is not what you would expect. But David genuinely appreciates the honor that they showed to Saul. And it's also a really wise, shrewd political move as well to have their support. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So Abner was the cousin of Saul. Abner was the commander of Saul's army. Abner is the man with all the artillery. Abner has all of the military strength in Israel. And he says, we're not letting go this easily. And so there's one son of Saul that for some reason, he was not on the battlefield with his brothers. He didn't die in the battle. Uh, Ishbosheth, his name means man of shame. And that's probably a nickname that the author of Samuel gave to him. Uh, Chronicles has his name as Eshbaal, which means Baal perjure. But this is a nickname, man of shame. And Abner props him up as king. He puts him in the city of Mahanaim, which is on the other side of the Jordan River. He, he sets them up as this puppet king, as this figurehead, and then just puts them in the backwaters. He, he's, he's almost embarrassed of him. And it'll, we'll find out later that when uh, Abner removes his support for Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth's uh, whole reign just crumbles. There's nothing to the man. There's nothing special about him. He doesn't deserve to be king. He hasn't done a whole lot. In fact, he's only going to reign for two years. But that just shows that Abner is really the one running the show here. Verse 12. <clears throat> Now Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zeruiah, who is Zeruiah? That's David's sister. David's sister Zeruiah had three sons. Most notably, her son was Joab. Joab is then David's nephew. But if David is the baby brother, his nephew could very well be older than him. Uh, very, very well, um, or they could be about the same age, and maybe Joab and David were about the same age, but this is David's nephew. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So we have Abner and his men on one side, Joab and the men of David on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the field of sharp swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So Abner and the remaining army of Saul's house, they encroach upon David's territory. They go to a city of Benjamin. Remember, Saul was a Benjamite, and this is a very prominent city in Benjamin with a lot of history. Abner and his, his men go to retake the city. 
But when they get there, they find that Joab is there and David's men are there. And so uh, Abner is the aggressor. Abner, and, uh, who is the cousin of Saul, he's the aggressor. And he meets Joab, David's nephew, at the pool of Gibeon. Um, and they think, well, let's sort this out by a little tournament. Let's just have a little ceremonial battle. They have this conversation. It escalates to the point that they, they have to have some kind of contest. Twelve men w from each side would compete in a tournament. This way, not everybody has to fight. There doesn't have to be a lot of bloodshed. We can just have these 12 champions face each other and we'll see whose side the Lord is on. But all 25 men rose up. They each grabbed each other's hair with one hand and run him through with a sword with the other. So if you're right-handed, you grab his ha hair and you run him through with a sword. And while you're running this guy through with a sword, he's got your head and he's given you his sword and all 24 men fall down together. Now, uh, some biblical symbolism is hard to understand. But if you have 12 men fighting 12 men, you see Israel is in conflict against Israel. And when Israel fights Israel, everybody loses. Everybody's judged. Everybody falls down. Joab and Abner didn't get the lesson, though. Instead, they turned this ceremonial civil war into a real civil war. Verse 18. Now the sons of Zeruiah were there, the three sons of Zeruiah, Joab and Abishai and Azahel. And Azahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. Azahel could run as fast as a deer. So Azahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. And Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Azahel? He answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of his spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and he died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Azahel fell down and died stood still. So then all three of David's nephews are there and Azahel, Joab's brother, pursues Abner relentlessly. And Abner's warning him and says, you better quit it. You better quit it. You better back off. Look, attack one of these other guys in my company. You take his armor, whatever. And that guy's thinking, uh, I, you know, what are you, why are you throwing me under the bus? What did I do? But uh, this is what Abner's saying. Just, uh, just take somebody. But if you don't leave me alone, this is not going to end well. Well, Azahel is as fleet as a deer. He runs as fast as a deer. And Abner has no choice but to defend himself. So he doesn't kill Azahel out of malice. He doesn't even turn around to face him. He has a spear, and you would sharpen the end of your spear so you could stick it in the ground. So he's got a It doesn't have a metal tip on it. It's just a wooden point where you could stick your spear in the ground. So Abner's running, but Azahel catches him. And all Abner has to do is this. And it runs a spear right through Azahel until it comes out his back. He didn't want to do it, but uh, he was defending himself and he impaled him. Now this opens up a whole new set of problems. Abner just killed the nephew of David. Uh, the house of Saul and the house of David are in total warfare now, total conflict, complete, uh, complete opposition to one another. So we pick up in verse 24. Joab and Abishai, the other two brothers of Azahel, David's nephews, Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner 
And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amma, which is where Gia, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have been given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithran, and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants, 19 men, and Azahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. Then they took up Azahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which is in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So eventually Abner and his men gather on a hill. They stop, they turn around, and they address Joab and his men who are in pursuit. And they beg them to give up the fight before everyone is killed. Joab then says, okay, I'm going to call off the dogs, and I'm going to go back home. And he marched all night. And he gets there in the morning. And usually in scripture, when you have a new morning, that's a new start. That's a new world. That's a new creation. But Joab isn't going to let the morning rise and forgive everything. This is, not, this is not a resurrection for Joab. This is not a new day. This is just the first of many bloody days to come. And throughout this long fighting, harsh war, this, this, this long war, David's men are prevailing. And David's house is growing stronger and stronger while the house of Saul is growing weaker. So this is no longer a contest between two hotheads like Joab and Abner. Uh, this has escalated into a conflict between the house that God has anointed to sit on the throne and the house that God has removed, the house of David and the house of Saul. The Lord is building David's house just as he promised, but it's not happening peacefully. Let's continue, and I'll make some uh, uh, broader observations at the end, but let's, let's uh, continue reading the story. Verse 2, sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon by Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, his second Chiliab by Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, the third Absalom the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur, the fourth Adonijah the son of Haggith, the fifth Shephatiah the son of Abital, the sixth Ethraim by David's wife Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Boy, this is not good. Now we've got six women that David is married to, and they all have sons. This is further commentary on the flawed foundation that David is laying for his kingdom. He's already had three wives, Michal, the daughter of Saul, Ahinoam, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal. And now, now we find he's got six different wives, not counting Michal. Now, Deuteronomy forbids, expressly forbids the king to multiply wives, to multiply horses, or to multiply gold. And he's already starting doing exactly what God's law requires him not to do, which is to multiply, multiply wives. His womanizing is going to come back and bite him in a bad way. These boys that are born here, Ammon, Absalom, they're going to learn bad things from daddy's example. 
So when you have lots of wives, not only is there competition between the wives, but there's competition between their sons. He has several firstborn sons now, and he's just setting himself up for a lot of heartache and trouble. You think there's a succession problem now with him coming to his throne. What's it going to be like when he has a succession problem in his own house? Well, that's what's going on with David. Let's go check in on Ishbosheth, the puppet king that Abner set up over in uh, Mahanaim. Uh, verse uh, 6 of chapter 3. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David as Yahweh has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Ishbosheth accuses Abner of taking Saul's concubine. We don't know whether he actually did this or not. It's an accusation. Ishbosheth could be just as paranoid and delusional as his father Saul was. The Bible doesn't say that the accusation was correct. And if it were correct, it doesn't make any sense to me that Abner would get really worried about that. Ishbosheth is a shell. He's just an empty suit. There's nothing to him. Why, do, why does Abner care if he really did this? Why does he care what Ishbosheth thinks? It's more likely to me that Ishbosheth is misinformed or making a bad accusation here. And Abner says, Look, I'm an old man. I don't need this kind of accusation. Abner, remember, Abner's in Saul's generation, right? So Abner says, I, I don't need this. Uh, Ishbosheth, you would be nothing without me. And so, look, I'm going to take all of, my, all of my eggs out of this basket and I'm going to move them over to David. I don't support you anymore. I'm going to move on. I'm going to cut my losses. I'm going to pledge my loyalty to David. So immediately Abner makes contact with David because this Ishbosheth plan didn't pan out and there's been a lot of bloodshed. So Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David saying, whose is the land? Uh, see, this is a re little revival in the heart of Abner. Suddenly he realizes, oh my goodness, the land belongs to David. By covenant, God gave the land to David. Saying also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Uh, now that Abner's trust in Ishbosheth has departed, he believes the promises and the covenants God made with David. Abner's crooked, but he's not stupid. He pledges to deliver Israel to David. However, within this exchange, there's this tragic story that, again, it makes it really difficult to sympathize with David. 
he has one request before he establishes peace with Abner. And that is, he asks for Michal, the daughter of Saul, to be returned to him. Now, on one level, you could say David had every right. Saul stripped his wife away from him. And you have to wonder if, if he were allowed to remain with his wife all these years, would he have, would he have been the womanizer? Would he have been the, uh, you know, the, 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 the bigamist that he was, the polygamist? Would, would he be, we don't know. I don't know that at all. But on one level, you could say David had every right to make this demand because he, he paid a dowry for her. Um, also, on top of that, it's a wise political move because a male offspring from Michal would unite the claims of his house and the claims of, of Saul's house. It would transfer, the, the, the transfer of Saul's daughter to the house of David would symbolically symbolize the gift of the kingdom to David. Still, it, it may be politically clever to do this. It may even be technically uh, legal to do this, but there's a great undertone of sorrow in this. It may be legal, it may be shrewd, but it is very cruel. This woman, Michal, has been married to a man named Paltiel for at least 10 years now, and she is being ripped away from her life, and she's now brought into David's house, leaving this man without a wife. Now, David has six wives. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen later with Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba, right? He's going to take a man's wife. This man has one wife. David has many, but he takes her away. In addition to that, Michal is going to be just a big grief to David as well. She mocks David uh, for the way he dances before the ark, remember? She dies childless. She never gives him uh, an heir. Uh, there's no heir that unites the house of David and Saul. So it, this is just really unnecessary and cruel on David's part. You can do something that's completely legal and completely maybe shrewd, but also completely cruel. And that's, that's what David is doing here. Uh, and at the same time, we can't let Saul off the hook because he created this mess to begin with by, ta by taking her back. Um, let's, let's pick up in verse 17. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel saying, in time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For Yahweh has spoken of David saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines, from the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed to be good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and went in peace. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he'd sent him away, and he'd gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he's gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he's already gone? Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. David makes peace with Abner while Joab is off raiding. Uh, 
And when Joab returned, he's surprised. Wait, Abner was in your presence and you didn't kill him? Abner's here to spy on us. Abner's here to undermine us. You made peace with the enemy and you made peace with the killer of my brother and you didn't even talk to me. You didn't even get my advice on this. Joab was very suspicious of Abner's motives and he thought he knew better than David how this situation needed to be handled. So Joab takes it upon himself to call for Abner and Abner thinks, oh wow, there's, uh, maybe now I get a chance to make peace with Joab. He asks for a private conversation and when they meet, Joab stabs Abner in the belly in the city gate and he kills him. Now, this, this is really tough to swallow as well. Uh, Hebron is a city of refuge uh, where, where this happens. Um, even if, you know, Abner's murder, uh, Abner didn't murder Azahel. That was, a, that was a, a death that happened in the course of war. That was, a, that, was a, that was in the conflict. He was defending himself and Abner should have been protected in the city of refuge. But Joab ignores all of this. This is just top to bottom, a really bad deal. I don't know how anybody could defend Joab's actions and it doesn't help anything. It only makes David's work more difficult. Uh, and David's going to condemn Joab's actions here, but no matter how strongly he condemns it, suspicions are going to linger that David put a hit out on Abner. Who's going to believe that David had nothing to do with this? What a mess. Let's finish the chapter, and I'll make one or two very, very brief uh, statements about this, but I do want to read the whole thing. Uh, verse 28, afterward, when David heard it, he said, my kingdom and I are guiltless before Yahweh forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper or leans on a staff or falls by the sword or lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, the brother, uh, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Azahel at Gibeon in the battle. And David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, should Abner die as a fool dies, your hands were not bound nor your feet put into fetters as a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day. David took an oath saying, God do to me so more, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though I know a king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. Yahweh shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. David is publicly demonstrating his affection for Abner and his disapproval of Joab's deed. David ordered Joab and the rest of his house to put on sackcloth and lament before Abner's casket. And David weeps openly at the grave. He fasts until sundown and he composed a lament for the occasion. There are two things that David is doing here that bakes in weakness into his kingdom. He is starting out in a bad way for two reasons. First of all, he has multiplied wives and which has set up conflict in his own house and he has not restrained Joab. Joab is a warmongering, contentious, violent man, and David's doing nothing to stop him. Joab is going rogue, 
And despite David's genuine sorrow for Abner and Saul, David fails to deal with Joab correctly. Now David prays that his house would be cursed, but he doesn't send him away. He doesn't punish him decisively. David keeps Joab around and he continues to lean on him. David hates what Joab does, but there's a part of him that loves what it accomplishes. It's Joab that David is gonna kill to send Uriah the Hittite, remember? Joab is only beginning to spoil David's work. Joab is only beginning to ruin David's credibility. Joab is a contentious, violent man who David keeps close to him and David does nothing to restrain him. There are a great number of warnings in the scriptures about not keeping company with a violent man. You don't keep company with a contentious man. There are these people like Joab who just live to, to, to thrive on conflict to the point that they can't, they can't really enjoy themselves unless they're stirring up trouble and causing heartaches for other people. Somehow they take it upon themselves and they believe that they're actually executing righteousness with what they're doing. They're on a crusade, but they're not pursuing peace. It's just endless strife. They believe that their cause is righteous, but the way they engage show us that they're, they're not really pursuing peace, but in fact, they're really warped. Titus 3 says this, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. That word warped means turned or twisted. They twist words and situations and they twist conversations and they twist ideas and they're unreasonable. They can't be counseled with, they can't be reasoned with. For, for this cause, contentious, divisive people are a threat and they're to be watched and they're to be noted. Romans 16 says, I urge you brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Note the divisive man and avoid him. There's a number of practical reasons why you reject and avoid the divisive people, the, the contentious man. Contentious people destroy the witness of the kingdom of God. The way that Joab repeatedly destroyed David's reputation and undermined him and made the job of uniting the kingdom more difficult Jesus prayed that we would all be one and that our unity would reflect the unity of the Trinity to the world. But when the church gets a reputation in the world as a, as a people who can't get along and always fighting, it's because we've put up with contentious men. It's because we've put up with violent men who can't be satisfied. What, what are the worst sins you can think of? Adultery? Murder? Proverbs 6 lists six sins that God hates and the seventh is detestable to him. What is it? One who sows discord among the brethren. Contentious people destroy the church's joy. David, at this point, ought to be rejoicing over the unification of the northern tribes. All of, all of his mental and emotional and physical resources should be poured into making this transition as smooth as possible. This is a great cause of rejoicing. Instead, they have a funeral. Instead, there's grief and anxiety. And this, this divisive, contentious, warmongering man is still on the loose and they're singing a lament instead of a song of joy. Contentious people make worship and make uh, church life a burden. They cause grief and they bring anxiety instead of joy. They distract us from what we're put here to do. They occupy our minds and relationships and they occupy our schedules with conflict and strife instead of productive ministry. Uh, contentious people are demotivating. They, David can't make a move without wondering, what's Joab going to think? What's Joab going to do about this? Joab has this twisted opinion that I'm going to have to deal with. It hampers the work of righteousness. It hampers the work of justice, doing what you have to do when you have to deal with contentious people. 
So, you have the permission of Scripture, and you have the testimony of David's mess with Joab, and it's going to get worse. I'm just, I'm just platforming it here. It's going to get much worse. You have the testimony of David's terrible mess with Joab to not have anything to do with contentious people. And you hear the severe warnings here of being a contentious person yourself. Don't pick foolish fights with God's people. Don't take jurisdiction that's not yours to take. If you're always in the center of a conflict, if you're always at the center of a fight or a drama, if you can't let go of things, if you always have to be right, if you always have to win no matter what, maybe it's not everybody around you who's the problem. Maybe you're the one we all need to mark and avoid until you see what you're doing and repent of it. David baked contentiousness into his kingdom by keeping Joab around and by setting up his own household in conflict against itself by multiplying wives. We can't bake conflict into the church, but rather walk humbly with each other in mutual deference, esteeming each other more highly than ourselves. I've got more to say about how Jesus initiated his kingdom, but I'll save that for the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your goodness. We ask you to uh, remove from us contentiousness and violence from evil speaking and all manners of, 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 of hateful behavior and mean-spiritedness. May we not be in any way like Joab and may we, like, uh, unlike David, uh, reject and mark and rebuke the contentious one. Father, uh, give us strength to do this and, and may we continue to meditate on your word all week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.